The parable is saying that God has done everything necessary for Israel to produce good fruit. But these blessings and graces have been so mismanaged by the leadership that the nation as a whole has become entirely unprofitable to him. Despite his having sent many prophets to prompt them back on track, they have persisted in their violent opposition and are even now proposing to put the Messiah and Son of God to death. But God's purposes will prevail. The stone that the Jewish leaders reject, Jesus, will become the cornerstone of a whole new building. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. In this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem. His approach is very interesting, and his reception is far less welcoming than the first-time reader of the Bible might expect. There is a conflict brewing between the current leaders of the covenant community and the long-awaited Messiah of God. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 21. In this chapter, Matthew begins to narrate the final week of Jesus' life. He has been journeying down from Galilee with his disciples and likely also with a large number of Galilean pilgrims who are traveling to Jerusalem for the festival. At the end of chapter 20, Jesus was in Jericho, which is where you would turn right or west and begin to walk up the winding roads that lead to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is a city at the top of a mountain, and therefore, no matter where you're coming from, if you are going to Jerusalem, you are going up. That's why pilgrims sang the songs of ascent as they made their way to Jerusalem. They were ascending. They were going up. And so here Jesus is going up. He is walking up those steep winding roads with his disciples and nearing the entry point of the city. This will be, of course, Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem in his earthly life. He's going there to die. He is the ultimate Passover lamb, and he will offer his life there as a ransom for many. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, while it is certainly possible that Jesus just knew that these people who owned these animals would be happy to make them available to him, it seems far more likely that Jesus has made previous arrangements. I think the point is that Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. He's planned this out. He is engaging in a bit of prophetic pageantry here. He's making a clear, unmistakable, bold, biblical declaration. He is saying in the language of Zechariah 9.9 that he is the long-awaited king. Come now to his people in peace. Had he come for war, 
he would have come riding on a white horse. That he comes riding on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey, indicates that at present, he comes in peace. That's the main point being made here. Jesus is saying, I am your king, Jerusalem. I am the Messiah. I am presenting myself to you in peace. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time for you to bow before me. In the language of Psalm 2, Jesus is saying, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The the whole point of the two-stage coming of Christ was to first offer people the opportunity to make their peace with God through Christ before the kingdom came in power. In Revelation 19, 11 to 21, the king will come in a completely different fashion. That passage tells us the story of Christ's second coming. And there he is riding on a white horse and dressed for war. You don't want to meet Jesus for the first time on that day. You want to meet him on this day, in this way. You want to embrace him as the king of peace, riding on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I know we're fairly early on in the program audio, but I want to jump in here for a second because I've often wondered how exactly are we to understand Jesus' actions in this story? Is this a miracle? Did Jesus use his divine powers to see across space and time so as to know that this donkey would be available in this particular place? And then did he use some kind of like Jedi mind trick to convince the owner to release it into the possession of the disciples? Is that what's going on here? Or was this entire episode carefully scripted? Because to be honest, it feels scripted. And I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about that. Oh, I think it's definitely scripted. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In, in fact, in the Old Testament, the prophets of God regularly engaged in what we might call prophetic theater. So we think of Jeremiah being commanded to buy a new pair of linen undergarments and then to bury them in the banks of the Euphrates, only to retrieve them much later on after they were ruined and soggy and gross, and then to wear them around in public as a very powerful way of communicating that God was going to bury and ruin Israel by means of the exile in Babylon. That was a very graphic way of communicating. When all the other prophets in Jeremiah's day were saying, peace, peace, and the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, Jeremiah was walking around in a ruined pair of underpants saying, God is going to bury you and destroy you if you do not repent of your sin and idolatry. Or we think of the prophet Ezekiel. Probably no one engaged in more prophetic theater than Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 4, he built a miniature version of the city of Jerusalem and then laid siege to it, prophesying the coming siege and destruction of the city by Babylon. Then in Ezekiel 12, God told him to dress like a prisoner being led away into exile. He was, he was to pack his few belongings in a bag, and then, and then every night he was going to dig a hole in the side of his house and push the bag out in front of him and squeeze out after it and hoist the bag up on his shoulder and wander out of the city in the dark. He was supposed to do that again and again and again to symbolize escaping the destruction of the city, only to be led away into exile and servitude. Maybe the most dramatic bit of theater that he engaged in was that time when God told him that his wife was going to die and he was not allowed to mourn her. He was supposed to just carry on with his business as if it hadn't happened. He was supposed to do that to represent the fact that there was going to be so much death 
that it would become commonplace and no one would even have time or the ability, the emotional and psychological ability to properly mourn their loved ones. And then Zechariah one time acted out an entire play. He first played the role of a good shepherd who got into an argument with the sheep traders and who was eventually rejected by the sheep as their shepherd. And then in the second act of the play, he plays the role of the bad shepherd that God is going to send on the people as a punishment for rejecting the good shepherd. And the bad shepherd basically eats the flock for lunch. He's an absolute beast. I'm guessing that play was ultimately about Jesus. He was the good shepherd that the people of Israel rejected. Yeah, exactly right. And that's why, of course, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John 10. He is stepping into that prophetic imagery, which is exactly what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 21. He is engaging in some prophetic drama of his own as he acts out a scene that is lifted directly from an Old Testament eschatological oracle. Well, that's a mouthful. (laughs) What is an eschatological oracle? An eschatological oracle is an oracle or a prophetic writing or pronouncement about the end. That's what eschatology means. It means words or beliefs about the end. The Old Testament prophets believed that the coming of the Messiah would bring the present shape of the world to an end and would usher in a whole new kingdom of God. And so, Jesus, in his first coming, would often do things in a way that would help people identify him as the one who was expected to come. And that's exactly what he's doing here. In the book of Zechariah, there is an eschatological oracle about the coming king. It's found in Zechariah chapter 9 and 10. At the heart of that really interesting prophecy, it says this. This is Zechariah 9, verse 9 to 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's the part that Jesus acts out on Palm Sunday. He rides up to Jerusalem on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. And why is that? Well, because a donkey represented middle-class civilian transport. It was the Honda Civic of the day, as opposed to a a war horse, which was the M1 Abrams tank of its day. So this is Jesus saying, I come in peace. I come humbly and riding on a donkey. Okay, but now listen to the next verse. Verse 10, he says, I shall cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, close quote. So here he is saying that in his coming, he will cut off the traditional weapons of war from his people. He will not allow his kingdom to be spread by means of violence and power. He will speak peace to the nations and therefore his people must learn to speak peace as well. Nevertheless, despite these restrictions, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Thomas McComiskey says here, so it has always been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and savior, closed quote. Wow, that is a lot of meaning packed into one tiny little detail in this story. (laughs) Exactly, and that's the whole point of prophetic theater. It's like a picture that is worth a thousand words, as they say. That's really cool. Thanks for walking us through that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, 
and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The crowds here are likely the people who've come up with Jesus along the road from Jericho. They're almost certainly Galileans, and Jesus was their hometown hero. They're almost certainly not to be thought of as the same people who a few days later will be shouting out for Jesus to be crucified. That crowd was stirred up by the leaders in Jerusalem. And there were many people in Jerusalem for the feast and many different attitudes towards the Lord. We forget that sometimes. Jerusalem during peacetime and during non-festival seasons was a city of about 30,000 people. During the Passover, the number of people in the city could swell to over 2 million. And so within that group, there were many different attitudes towards Jesus. Here in this crowd of Galilean pilgrims about to enter the city, we see incredible enthusiasm and also limited understanding. They recognize Jesus as the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, their hometown hero and healer. But they don't yet understand that he is also the suffering servant and Savior of the world. We pick up the story in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus is putting two quotations together there, the first from Isaiah 56, 7, and the second from Jeremiah 7.11. He's very upset with what he sees when he enters the temple. The money changers referred to here had set up their booths in the court of the Gentiles, thus squeezing out space for the Gentiles to pray to God. This is just another example of the sort of thing that Jesus has been critical of in the Judaism of his day. They were more concerned with external ritual matters than with the heart and substance of God's revelation. They didn't want foreign coins in the temple. That was the issue, right? Because that might constitute idolatry. And they didn't want road-weary animals. That might constitute blasphemy. So in order to attend to these ritual concerns, they completely went against the heart of what the temple was supposed to do in the first place, which was to facilitate prayer and approach to God. So once again, they've strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. They've missed the most important thing, and they have obsessed over religious minutiae. They have served their human traditions and completely obscured the heart and essence of the law. And Jesus is very angry about that, and he takes action. There, there is a place for righteous anger, obviously. If Jesus does it, then obviously there is a place for it. Now, of course, we want to notice to whom it is directed. Jesus is angry at the leaders, at the people who ought to have known better. And we should notice, too, that his anger is towards the end of a wider extension of God's mercy and grace to those in desperate need of it. The main point here is that Jesus is done with the temple. The entire temple construct and the whole system of religion that has been built up around it is defective, and it needs to be replaced 
And so, not so coincidentally, we see Jesus in the very next verse doing exactly what the temple and the whole Jewish system was apparently incapable of doing. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Comparing with the Gospel of John, we understand that Jesus was going in and out of the city from his home base in Bethany throughout Passover week. Verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The arrangement of this miracle suggests that it intends to communicate Jesus' complete rejection of the Jewish temple system. It was a fruitless tree, promising much, but delivering nothing, particularly to the poor and needy who depended upon it. Fig trees were planted along the roads in Israel to provide free food to weary travelers, but this tree, like Israel, like the entire Jewish religious system, had nothing to offer such people and therefore, having been warned, is now rejected. Matthew also records the disciples marveling over Jesus' power, which presents Jesus an opportunity to speak to them about the power of believing prayer. William Hendrickson says usefully here, no task in harmony with God's will is impossible to perform to those who do not doubt, closed quote. Thanks be to God. Verse 23, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The question of Jesus drives his opponents into a corner and puts their motives on full display. They do not wish to submit to God or to any of his messengers. They want to remain in control no matter the cost. The following parables are clearly directed at these leaders. Verse 28. What do you think? 
a man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The point of this parable is fairly straightforward. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are like the son who initially said no to the father. But then, under the preaching of John the Baptist, they repented and did the father's will. Thus, They are entering the kingdom of heaven. The leaders of Judaism, however, are like the son who makes a show of being obedient to the father, but who in actuality do nothing. Therefore, they're in danger of missing out. Verse 33, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here, Jesus makes use of some well-known biblical imagery from Isaiah 5, 1-7, the well-known story of the vineyard, and Psalm 88 to 17, which speaks in the same form, the same imagery. And he uses all this vineyard imagery to speak this parable against the Jewish leaders, which according to verse 45, they understood perfectly. The metaphors are not hard to decipher. The landowner is God, obviously. The vineyard, Israel, as per the Old Testament. The tenants, the Jewish leaders, the servants, the prophets, and the son, of course, is Jesus. The parable is saying that God has done everything necessary for Israel to produce good fruit. But these blessings and graces have been so mismanaged by the leadership that the nation as a whole has become entirely unprofitable to him. Despite his having sent many prophets to prompt them back on track, they have persisted in their violent opposition and are even now proposing to put the Messiah and Son of God to death. But God's purposes will prevail. The stone that the Jewish leaders reject Jesus 
will become the cornerstone of a whole new building. William Hendrickson says helpfully here, the cornerstone of a building, in addition to being part of the foundation and therefore supporting the superstructure, finalizes its shape. For being placed at the corner formed by the junction of two primary walls, it determines the lay of the walls and cross walls throughout. All the other stones must adjust themselves to this cornerstone. Such is the relation of Christ to his church. Closed quote. Are you hearing that? Jesus is saying that the Lord will take the kingdom management out of the hands of the present leaders and will build something entirely new upon the foundation and pattern of Jesus Christ. And anyone who opposes this transition, anyone who opposes Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of a whole new building will himself be pulverized and crushed. That's what the parable is saying. And the Jerusalem leaders did not require any help with the interpretation. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Far from heeding the implicit warning the leaders actually begin to scurry about seeking how to arrest Jesus away from the crowds. Everything Jesus says in this parable will come to pass. They will oppose the air. They will kill the sun. And they will be put to a miserable death. And the leadership of the vineyard will be given to others. And Jesus will become the cornerstone of a whole new spiritual building of God. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2, 20-21, that the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word here on Life 100.3. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.